please hear now the reading of God's holy word. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the, one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this parable that instructs us and it teaches us, and it just reminds us of who you are. And so in this moment now, as we turn our attention to you, I pray, God, that we would forget about the things that so occupy our minds, that we would make room for your spirit to come and to fill our minds and our thoughts and our hearts with your words. And I pray, God, that that would encourage us and it would build us up so that we can love you more, that we can serve you and obey you. Why? Because you show us over and over again your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Have you ever done a DIY project? DIY, of course, stands for do-it-yourself. And so from small things like um, little crafts to big things like major home improvements, uh, do-it-yourself projects, they are extremely popular. Uh, And as I thought about it, I came to this realization. Every religion in this world, every major religion, in some form or another, is like a do-it-yourself project. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the world's religious books, they are really manuals on how to save yourself. All these religious books, they teach you how to get right with God. They teach you how to escape the karmic cycle you're in. They teach you how to reach nirvana. They teach you how to free your soul. They teach you how to achieve inner peace. And this is true of almost every major religious book except for the Bible. Because... The Bible doesn't teach its readers how to reach God. In fact, it does the very opposite. The Bible is filled with countless stories of man's attempt to reach God, to do a do-it-yourself kind of salvation, and the utter failure over and over again of man trying to reach God. And then it shows how although we could never reach God, that he would come down for us, that he would come to save us. And it's interesting that this is the nature of mankind. It's in our hearts. We want to save ourselves. We want to get ourselves out of the ruts we find ourselves in, the valleys we feel lost in. But the parable that we're reading about teaches us that Christianity is not a do-it-yourself self-salvation project. It's not about how to turn your life around when you're in the gutter. It's not about how to find your way back home when you're too lost. 
This parable shows us the futility of a son who tries to save himself and the compassion of a father who will do anything to bring his lost child back home. And so our focus today is verses 14 to 20, and from it I'd like to consider this gospel truth. God's self-sacrifice, not your self-salvation, is what brings you home. God's self-sacrifice, not your self-salvation, is what brings you home. And so I want to look at this text under three things. Two attempts at self-salvation, and then God's plan of selfless sacrifice. So we're going to look at two attempts that we do to save ourselves, and then we're going to end with looking at God's plan to save us. So first, this is the first point. Attempting self-salvation through self-reliance. In any story, there's a conflict that leads to a resolution. And in this story, we finally get to the conflict. Verse 14, there was this young man who demanded his inheritance from his father. And then it says in verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So this young boy who demanded his inheritance from his father squanders it all in reckless living, and now there's a big, big problem because there's a famine, and he has no money. He has no home to go to because he has run away. He has no family because he has rejected them. In fact, he has no friends either. As soon as all of his money disappears, his friends disappear. So verse 16 comments really sadly, no one gave him anything. He was utterly alone. Now, think about this. At this point, Jesus could have finished the story. If his only point of telling the parable, because if you remember, he's addressing the parable to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders. If his point was simply that God shows grace to sinners and tax collectors, then Jesus could have stopped the story right here. Right? Jesus could have told the parable in this way. There was a son. He demanded the inheritance from the father, which meant, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me your money. He spends it recklessly. There's a famine. There's great need. He turns back home. His father embraces him. That would have been a beautiful story. Jesus could have ended it right there. And he would have communicated his point. God welcomes back sinners. I mean, that was all that was needed. And remember, this is not a true story. This is a parable. So Jesus is making up the story as he goes. If he wanted to, he could have just ended it here. He didn't have a a moral obligation to tell the historical facts. This is all made up. But Jesus intentionally keeps the story going. Why doesn't the son just go home at this point? Because I think Jesus wants to show us the futility of trying to save yourself. You see, the son could have turned around and began his journey back home. But in his pride, because he ran away, because he rejected his family, he couldn't go back home so easily. He wouldn't let himself go back so easily. So what does he do? He begins a self-salvation project. He thinks to himself, you know what? I'm going to get myself out of this situation, and I'm going to do it through self-reliance. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going to make my way. So verse 15 continues. So instead of going home, it says, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. So here's this son. He has no money. He has no options. And he begins considering what's available. There's a famine in the land, so everybody's struggling. There aren't many opportunities for him to take. 
The Bible uses this phrase, he hired himself out to one of the citizens. And that's more literally translated, he joined himself to this man. He clung to this man. Now, what was the younger son doing? Why did he cling? Hired himself out sounds very nice, but it really says he clung. He joined himself. Why? Because by attaching himself to a wealthy man, he was trying to weasel some money out of him. Have you ever been at a stoplight and somebody comes and they just start washing your windshield? And you're like, stop, why? Because as soon as they finish, they're going to say, I clung myself to you. Now you have to give me money. You know, in 2010, right after the earthquake, I took a mission trip to Haiti. And Haiti was in utter ruin. And if you remember, uh, Port-au-Prince, the, where the major airport was, uh, was pretty much um, inoperable. And so we landed and we just kind of got off in the middle of the runway and we walk through this makeshift terminal. And we're in there, and there's no AC. There's just these giant industrial fans. And we meet the missionary, and he says, okay, make sure you gather all your stuff. And he says, okay, I'm going to warn you, and I'm just going to say this once. When we go out of these doors, there are going to be people who come up to you, and they're going to try to carry your bags. They're going to try to even put a finger on your bag. You cannot let them. And we're like, why not? And they said, because they will demand money. And we're like, this, what's wrong with that? And so we opened the door of this makeshift terminal, and there are, it must have been over a hundred people just waiting. People who were utterly devastated from the earthquake. There were some with missing limbs, there were little poor children with dirt all over them. People with blood-stained clothes ripped up, and a hundred or so people come running after us. And what are they trying to do? They're so desperate that they are, they're trying to put your hand you know, on the bag, and you have to say, oh, no, 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 I, I can't do it. The, the mission agency had made it a policy that you know, if you do it to one, then we've got to start giving up, so let's just, we can't do it. And um, I just remember it was such an intense scene. I was, I was flooded with emotions. I cry easily. Uh, I know I don't look like I do, but uh, I cry easily. I'm like, rock. Um, and I'm flooded with emotion, and I'm crying just seeing all this, and I hear in the back this screaming. And I'm like, who is screaming? And I turn around, and the missionary is face-to-face with a local going, no merci, no merci. If you know in Haiti, they speak French, and no mercy means no thank you. And he was trying to be polite and shouting at this guy, but this guy kept insisting, and they were playing tug-of-war with the bag. No mercy! And I looked at that, and why? Why was he like that? Because when you're that hungry and you're that desperate, you're not going to give up so easily. You will cling yourself to anybody. So here's this son. He's desperate. He's hungry. And he clings himself to this man. But you know what? He should not have taken this job. Because the job was for him to feed pigs. The prodigal son is a Jewish man. According to Old Testament Jewish law, a Jew was not allowed to handle or to work with pigs. Why? Because pigs were considered unclean animals. And if you did, you yourself would have been considered unclean. And so here's this Jewish son who's so hungry, who's so desperate, that he does the unthinkable. He takes the job. And as Jesus said this, you, you would have known. All of the Pharisees would have looked absolutely disgusted. 
That's like taking a job where you have to clean up human feces with your hands. They would say, that's unclean. It doesn't matter how hungry you are. You just don't do that. And we see the sun is spiraling lower and lower. But Jesus isn't done because he goes lower still. In verse 16, he says, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So not only was he working with pigs, but the sun had sunken so low. He was trying to save himself, but he was sinking lower and lower that he's beyond any form of dignity because now he's not only equal with the pigs in their filth, he is actually lower than the pigs. He's envious of the pigs. He's looking at the pigs are eating. He's going, oh, I want some of that. He's spiraling lower and lower. And so any listener of the story would have been absolutely disturbed. This isn't right. And it's not right in three ways. First, it's not right for a Jewish man to be with unclean pigs in their pen. Second, it wasn't right because a human being should not be envying the life and the food of an animal. And thirdly, it wasn't right because a man with a father should not be living as an orphan and a slave. Why is the son in this position? It's because he insists on saving himself through self Reliance. What about you? Are there areas in your life where you are being self-reliant? You refuse to ask God for help. Are there areas in your life where you have so much pride that you don't want to be in debt to anyone? You see, if the son were to head back and he received anything from the father, it wouldn't actually be his father he would owe. It would actually be his brother. You know why? Because the father, all he had, he would give away an inheritance. If one-third of it went to the younger son, then the rest of everything else actually belonged to the brother. And so if he went back, anything his father gave him, he would actually be in debt to his brother. He doesn't want that. Why? Self-reliance. I can do it myself. Are any of you in that kind of position? You know, the biggest obstacle in coming to God is actually yourself. It's your own pride. It's the resolute belief that, you know, I, I don't need God's help. I don't need anybody's help. I can do this on my own. I can get myself out of my own mess. But the more and more trust you put in yourself, the further you spiral down. It's like those who are in quicksand. You know the best way to get out of quicksand? It's to do nothing. Because the more you try to get yourself out, the further and deeper you fall into it. You see, there's a lesson here for us that unlike the son, all of us, we should be ready to confess the poverty of our true condition. Be ready to confess, my self-reliance won't actually get me anywhere. If anything, it actually further sets me back. You know, are you insisting that you are strong and able? Are you persistently declaring, you know, I can do this. I don't don't need God. Self-reliance becomes the biggest obstacle and returning back to God. So that's the son's first attempt. But there's a second attempt. This is our second point. Attempting self-salvation through selfish repentance. So in verse 17, the son, he comes to himself. And the listener goes, okay, oh, he's starting to make his way back to the father. But he's still insisting on his own terms. What do I mean? Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? 
So does the son repent? Now, some sermons, some preachers who I respect say, yes, this is repentance. But I don't think so. Because he's using his repentance, if it is repentance, as another form of self-salvation. What do I mean by that? For first of all, what's the base of his repentance? Why does he repent? It's not remorse over his actions. It's regret over his situation. There's a huge difference between remorse over what you've done and regret over the situation that you're in because of what you've done. And he realizes that his father's servants, it says this, have more than enough bread. Now, he's just not thinking about his stomach. Now, in the Bible, when it says bread, it doesn't only refer to literal bread. So when Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, give us this day our daily bread, Jesus isn't saying, don't ask for God for anything else, only ask for bread. No, bread meant your daily supply, your daily provision. And so when it says here that the hired servants had more than enough bread, it means that they had more than enough to survive. They, they had enough to eat and to survive, and they had enough to save a little. And so this son realizes if he works for his dad, he'll not only be able to eat enough, but then he'll be able to save. Why does he care about that? So he can pay his father back. This is why he says, Father, don't treat me like a son, because if you treat me like a son, everything will be free. I refuse to be treated like a son. I want to be treated on my works, on what I earn. So treat me like a hired servant. And that's why he says in verse 19, he plans on saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He doesn't want a freebie from his dad. He doesn't want grace. Treat me as you would a worker. I don't want a relationship with you based on sonship, but based on servitude. Now, why does he have this attitude? Because as a man who still has pride, he wants to earn his way back home basically saying he wants to save himself. And he uses his repentance selfishly because he has no true remorse over his actions, only regret over the consequence of his actions. You see, you know the son doesn't truly understand what he's done because when he comes back, he tries to make it about money. When in fact, for the father, it was never about the money. It was about the broken relationship. He doesn't understand the father's heart because he thinks if I can just pay him back, everything will be okay. But money won't heal a wounded heart. See, this is one way that you can even test the genuineness of your own repentance. When you come before God and you say, I'm sorry, and you confess, well, what are you repenting of? Of remorse that you've hurt the father's heart? Or regret of now the consequences you have to deal with? Regret is when you're sorry for the position you're in. Remorse is when you're sorry for the person you hurt. And this son's repentance is only full of regret. And we actually see it in one more place in verse 17. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, that doesn't seem like much, but what you and I miss, the Pharisees would have picked up on immediately. The Pharisees and the scribes were men who had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Some of you complain that it's hard to memorize a couple of CB verses. These religious leaders will have memorized Genesis to Deuteronomy. And because they have memorized that, they would have caught this one phrase. I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, when we hear that, 
because of our cultural and historical difference. You go, that sounds good. That sounds like true repentance. Why? Because look, he says, I've sinned against heaven, meaning I've sinned against God before I sinned against man. You would think this guy gets it. He understands repentance. Repentance is offense against God. As David prayed in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, what was David confessing of? Adultery and murder. Well, that seems to be against people. So we would think, oh, this is true repentance. But the Jewish leaders would have heard that and they would have kind of go, they would have said, Jesus, I know where you're going. So do you know where he's going? How, how good is your Exodus memorization? You see, in the book of Exodus, Moses is sent by God to deal with Pharaoh to let Israel go free from their enslavement. And so Moses is in this kind of battle uh, with Pharaoh as God sends plague upon plague in order to get Pharaoh to let Israel go. Now, in the eighth plague, it's a plague where a swarm, uh, God sends a swarm of locusts that cover all of the land and they begin to strip all of the land. In fact, there's so many locusts that uh, Moses actually writes, the land was darkened and not a green thing remained. And so here's what happens. The locusts come. It's blackening the sky. It's destroying the agriculture. So now Pharaoh goes to Moses. And in chapter 10, verse 16, this is what it says. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Sound familiar? If you read the Exodus story, you know that anytime Pharaoh says, I'm sorry, you guys can go, he never means it. He's never actually sorry. He's never actually repentant. He always has a hard heart. Yet here he speaks the same words of repentance that's in the parable. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God and against you. Why does Pharaoh do this? Because there are locusts eating his agriculture, his fields. He's saying what he knows Moses wants to hear so that the plague will stop. And in the same way, this younger son rehearses the same speech as Pharaoh does from the same heart for the same purposes. He doesn't care about his father. He just wants to appease him. He wants to be received back, given a job that pays him, and most importantly, to be left alone. In true repentance, you surrender. True repentance is coming before God and saying, Lord, I'm wrong. I'm willing to receive whatever punishment, whatever consequence for my actions. I know I deserve it. That's true repentance. What does a son do? He comes to the father, not willing to be punished, but ready to negotiate. There's no sorrow, no remorse, only regret. He says, give me a job like a hired servant and, you know, I'll pay you back in time. You see, do you realize that the son is headed back home, but he's not changed at all? He's still making requests of his dad. He's still demanding of his father. You know what his last words were? The last words he said to his father? Give me my share of the property. Give me my money. You know what the first words he says coming back? Hire me and pay me. Who repents like this? Who repents by writing a speech in advance and practicing it? Only someone who's not actually repentant. Only somebody who's still trying to get their way and they're using their repentance to manipulate or to negotiate or to demand. Don't we all do this? You know, I'll tell you a story. I've gotten one speeding ticket in my life, I'll admit. I was a college student. I went, I was going 25 miles per hour over. It was at 1.45 a.m. 
I was trying to make it to Wendy's before they closed at two. And I got pulled over. It was the most expensive Wendy's I've ever bought. Um, and I felt so silly and so foolish. And the night before my court appearance, I, um, I, I, try, I wanted to go to court to get what we call a PBJ, probation before judgment, so, that the, so no points or anything like that. And so I wrote out this speech. It was really good. And I rehearsed it and I memorized it. And I went before the judge and I delivered it, you know, amazingly. Um, and she waived the points, and there was no ticket fine. And, you know, I remember the whole process trying to balance my speech, you know, with words that made me appear remorseful, but I also needed to keep, like, some SAT words in there to be like, you know, I'm a hardworking student. Look, I've memorized these words. And, uh, and I had to end with a strong commitment that I learned my lesson. I would never do it again. And I remember all this so clearly because I remember standing before the judge and describing my driving behavior as an aberration. Uh, a lapse in my teenage judgment. I remember I said those words because after court, some lady came up to me and she was like, aberration, that's pretty good. I'll try that next time. (laughs) Um, Why would anyone practice, prepare and practice a speech? Because you need to say the right things in order to get the right response, to get the right reaction. This son thought he could save himself depending on the quality of the proposal he brought before his father. And in that moment, you see, he is not trusting in his dad's love and forgiveness. He's trusting in himself. You know, when you repent before God, are you throwing yourself at his mercy? Are you trying to impress God with your contrition? You know, some of us think that we can get God to be gracious if we come teary-eyed and we come burdened. You know, sometimes we beat ourselves up over sin, don't we? You know, we're hard on ourselves. We refuse to believe in grace. We, we curse ourselves and we tell ourselves, Andrew, you're the scum of the earth. How could you sin now? How could you think those thoughts again? How could you say those words again? Oh, man, this is not how somebody who loves God acts. And why do you do that? Because you think if you're hard on yourself that when you come before God, God will go, oh, man, he, I think he's really learned his lesson and I'll forgive him. Why do we do this? Because we think that if God sees us more distraught in our sin, if he sees us heavy laden, you know, we hope that that will move him to be more gracious. We do it because we think God will see how guilty we feel and ashamed we are, and then he'll be moved to compassion. But this is what you have to understand. Your repentance never saves you. Your repentance never saves you. It never does, and it never can You know, Matthew Henry even said that our repentance needs to be washed in the blood of Jesus. That even our repentance isn't the good work that saves us. So to trust in your repentance, to trust in your own sorrow over your sin, to trust in anything other than Jesus Christ to save you, is to trust in yourself. It's a selfish repentance, a self-salvation project. You see, whether through selfish repentance or self-reliance, there is no do-it-yourself salvation. You cannot find your own way back home. So then what? What's the hope? Which leads to our third point. God's plan of selfless sacrifice by walking the shameful road. What do I mean by that? In verse 20, it says that this young man, he arose and he came to his father. The son goes, okay, now I'm ready. Because when I go back, I know I'm going to have to endure the shameful road back home but he's ready to be hired as a servant and not be brought in as a rightful son. So he begins his journey. But this is where the story takes a turn because verse, verse 20 says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
You see, think about this. Each of the parables in Luke 15 has somebody searching. So in the first parable, the shepherd is searching for the lost sheep. In the second parable, the woman is searching for the lost coin. So if the pattern is the same, then the father should be searching for the son. But there's no mention of the father searching for the son. Why not? Because it doesn't say the father is searching for the son. It describes that the father is searching for the son. How do we know the father is searching for the son? Because the father sees him from a far distance. There's only two options. One is, coincidentally, in God's providence, this man walked out and he kind of he saw his son. Or it means that every morning, this father awoke and that he went out to his house. And the way the village was, there would be a long road leading up through the village. And he would look out into the distance waiting for his son to come home. And anybody who came from the distance, you could see them approaching. Now, here's the thing. The son going back home isn't just a problem because he rejected his father. Remember that when he took all of that inheritance, he really messed up the economy of the rest of the village, the whole community. It makes everything bad for them. But what's worse is he lost his money to Gentiles. And it was a Jewish custom at that time that any, anybody who did this, who did as the son did, which is take the father's, the family's inheritance and lose it to Gentiles, they would not be allowed back into the community. In fact, there was this Jewish custom when, when, the son tried, when anybody tried to return home who did this, he would be stopped at the gate. The gate is where you came into the community. And then the villagers would come out with a large pot and they would break, they would smash the pot. And they would say, so-and-so is cut off from the people. And the father is aware of this. He knows that even if his son tries to come back home, he will still be lost because they won't let him in. So every morning he goes out and he's searching to see if his son is coming back. And one day he sees his son from a distance. And what does he do? Right? Because if he sees his son and he says, he has to make his way to me. He's the one who's wrong. He knows that the son will never make it to him. The villagers will keep him out. They will break the pot. They will excommunicate him. They will shame him. They will reject him as he once rejected them. So what does the father do when he sees the son? He does the unthinkable. This dignified Jewish man, he runs like an undignified child. Men in this culture, they didn't run. They didn't run. Why? Because they wore long robes. In order to run, you would need to lift up your robes and expose your feet. And this was disgraceful. This was humiliating. This is what kids do. But for the sake of his son, this father runs. Now, the word Jesus chooses to use for run is actually a technical term. It's a word that describes foot races in a stadium. So in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Hebrews 12.2, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why does Jesus choose to use this word? Because he wants to convey the father didn't jog, he didn't trot, he didn't power walk, he sprinted. He raced after his son because he was so overwhelmed with compassion. Here was his boy. His boy, his runaway boy, now covered in pig filth. He's trying to walk this shameful road back home. And before the villagers can stop him and break the pot and cut him off, the father needs to beat them. So he runs down the road. He himself now, the father is bearing the shame as he runs for his son. 
And it's only in that moment, in the father's embrace, under the shower of his kisses, that the son is finally found. This is now when the son is safe. This is now when the son is home. It wasn't because of his self-reliance. It wasn't because of his own repentance. It was because his searching father ran down the shameful road to get him. And this is a picture of the gospel, and it cannot be more clear. In our pride, we have tried every possible way to reach God, to save ourselves, to be our own saviors, our own masters. Maybe some of you even now, even here, you're living in a way where you don't have to look to God because you don't want to depend on him. But no matter how hard you try, no matter what new approach you take, the reality is you cannot save yourself, and the more self-effort you put in, the more you find yourself covered in filth, worse than pigs and swine. You know, that's the condition we find ourselves in. Sin, misery, not with the stench of pigs, with the stench of death. We have no right to be received by God into his kingdom. And because we could not get to God, God came to us. He did the unthinkable He did the undignified. He did the outrageous. He sent his one and only son to get you in Jesus. He didn't waltz his way back. He didn't skip his way from heaven to earth. He raced. He ran from heaven to earth to enter the pig pen of this world in order to save you. You see, you think it's unclean for a Jewish man to sit with pigs? It's cosmically worse for the Holy Son of God to eat and sit with sinners and tax collectors like you and me. But this is exactly what Jesus did. And when we were in the gutter, and we were hungry, and we were desperate, and we were helpless, when you dreamed of being given the chance to get yourself out, like the son, you wished for a chance to be a hired servant so that you could work your way back, you could earn your way back. But the gospel promises you a far better deal. That Jesus Christ delivered you out of the pit. He brought you out of the hellhole of your life by going in it for you. The perfect son took your place there so you could take his place in the father's house. You see, you don't come to the father now as a hired servant, but as a daughter, as a son. You are brought into the family. You don't have to walk back to God enduring the shameful road. Why? Because Christ walked the shameful road for you. And he walked that road, and it didn't lead him into the town. It led him out of the town and out of the city gates. And there on the Mount of Calvary, he was crucified. He took upon himself your sins and your failures and your rejection and your rebellion. And he died alone. And as it says here, no one gave him anything. Through God's selfless sacrifice, he who was not given everything now gives you everything. You are brought back home to be received with embraces and kisses from your heavenly Father. Now, what what does this mean? It means give up your pride. Give up your pursuits. Give up your own efforts, give up your own self-salvation project, fall on his mercy, lean into his arms. 
You know, some of you are like this younger son. You are far away from God. You, you are in a pit of despair, and you're trying to dig yourself out. You're trying to earn your way home. Give up on yourself. Trust in the Father freely. You will be received as you are because Jesus walked the shameful road so that you don't have to. And there are others of you who are children in God's house. You're already restored, but you are still living as hired servants and not as rightful children. You're still trying to pay God back. You know, the Father's heart is full because you're home, not because he's collecting from you. So give up on yourself and enjoy being with the Father because Jesus has paid the debt so you don't have to. Friends, this is great news. This gospel truth that it's God's self-sacrifice, not your own self-salvation that brings you home. So come home. Come receive the embrace and the kisses of the Father. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are a searching Father. You are not a waiting Father. And you are searching after us. Some of us who are like this son in a far and distant land. Some of us who or maybe in your house, but we still relate to you as a servant and not as a child. Oh God, for all of us here who are longing for home, longing to be again in the Father's house, would you help us to give up on ourselves and know that the way home has been paved through Jesus. Thank you that you welcome every runaway, every rebellious child, everybody who tries to use even their repentance in a selfish way. You, you welcome us back. And so, Lord, let us turn back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who walked the shameful road, and the love of God the Father Almighty, who is searching and never giving up, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who works in our hearts true repentance that leads to remorse and not regret. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forever. Amen.